0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be looking
0: at an invention. This will be one of our invention episodes. And Rob, I think this is an idea we've been kicking
1: around at least for a couple of years now, and it's finally happening. That's right. We've been talking about Doing the invention of the chainsaw for Halloween ever since we were doing actual invention podcast episodes in a separate podcast feed. Um, Because the chainsaw, for all its merits as a useful tool, is also heavily associated with horror.
0: I noticed something about the chainsaw, which is that it has a... uh, even just the evocation of the concept feels kind of obscene. Like when I make reference to the idea of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even uh, uh, apart from any knowledge of the contents of the movie, just the fact that it involves a chainsaw feels like I'm talking about something that maybe shouldn't be mentioned. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll get more into like what the chainsaw is and what it comes to symbolize particularly in american culture uh, i found a great source on that uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure at where where we'll get into that in the, the discussion but if you just tackle the uh, the invention from a you know just look at the name of of the tool chainsaw you mm-hmm. know you're a combination of two already kind of repellent uh or potentially repellent uh, uh, classifications of thing. Uh, one is used sometimes to restrain or to, uh, you know, to, to, bind, to weigh down. And the other is used to, to sever and to cut. And now they're, they've come together into one item. Uh, so just on a, you know, almost like a, you know, a very basement level of our linguistic processing, it's already a kind of a repellent concept. And also the fact that it is we talk about the blade of the chainsaw It it is a blade that that cuts even if your intent to cut is not uh, 100 percent, you know, like it uh, you you technically don't have to really bear down too hard to do damage with the chainsaw. So it feels almost like it is uh, embodying some of these ideas of like the sword that wants to cut the sword that wants to drink and consume
0: yeah it has an inherent danger like it uh, suggests that not much force need be applied by the person wielding it that it uh mm-hmm. it has a cutting mind of its own uh in fact i think though it uh doesn't really conjure the same grizzliness you could accomplish the same kind of threat by calling it
1: something like the texas lightsaber massacre <laughs> well <laughs> uh yeah 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 i mean when we're talking to just about like yeah the the there is a, a certain amount of similarity there the lightsaber yeah not necessarily requiring a lot of force to to do damage to to a body um and then at the same time being being fairly dangerous to wield uh to the the person wielding it uh because that it literally cuts both ways there now uh one of the big reasons of course that we associate the chainsaw with horror is the 1974 film by toby hooper which centered around a family of Texas cannibals, including uh, Leatherface, who runs amok with a chainsaw. Though it'll be clear, and this is something that I think is sometimes lost on folks who maybe haven't seen the original film or haven't seen it in a while, um, or have only absorbed Texas Chainsaw Massacre through like the public consciousness, because it's become one of those films where you don't really have to, to have seen it to have some idea of what it is. But Leatherface <laughs> only murders one person with a chainsaw. You wouldn't know that if you only knew Texas
0: Chainsaw Massacre from playing the Atari game.
1: Oh, yeah? Uh, I have not. Uh, do you, does, does Leatherface uh, kill a lot of people with a chainsaw in that? Uh, no, it's just a sort of clump
0: of relatively large pixels that move around on a screen with sort of a barn background. From what I recall, oh. it's been a long time.
1: <laughs> so that's the only media uh, from the TCM franchise that you have uh, engaged with. You're going to have a very limited understanding. I think you
0: may get some sort of beeps and boops computer sounds uh, simulating the chainsaw noise. But uh, again, I'm a little fuzzy on that.
1: Yeah, so in the, in the original, Leatherface only uses it as a murder weapon once. Uh, he uses it in another case to uh, dismember what is either a corpse or a comatose individual. I can't remember which hmm. um, I think he may be dead at that point when he, when he cuts him up because most of the other killing that occurs in the film uh, is, is there are other implements that are used, especially the hammer. That's the one they talk about. The hammer is is best. Oh, yeah. And I think certainly for the most uh, shocking attack
0: in the movie mm-hmm. when he, like he suddenly pops out from behind that sliding metal door, which is just, oh, God, just thinking about that gives me a shiver now. Um, yeah. But one of the other weird things about the chainsaw is, as we'll discuss in this episode about the the history of this piece of technology, in 1974, at the time this movie was made, the widespread use of gas-powered chainsaws was actually fairly recent. I mean, this was... Uh, a technology uh, again that had been around in some sort of prototype form for a long time, but the widespread use was within living memory. It had only been the norm in logging for maybe a couple of decades.
1: Yeah, and that's I think that's 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 key uh, to keep in mind. Uh, and then, like I say, I have, an, I have a wonderful source on on some of this later. Like the cultural idea of the chainsaw is very much this this twentieth century uh, uh, adaptation. But um, as far as just chainsaws and horror movies go, uh, I, I was looking into this a little bit because I, I, I knew some of the, the precursors here, but uh, I wasn't familiar with all of them. But believe it or not, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 74, was not the first genre film to feature a bloody chainsaw. Uh, film historians often point to uh, a pair of different key forerunners, 1968's Dark of the Sun and 1970's The Wizard of Gore. Now, were you familiar with Dark of the Sun, Joe? No, I did not know this one, though. I I do know about Wizard of Gore. Okay, well, we'll start with Dark of the Sun just very briefly. Dark of the Sun, which I have not seen, was an adventure film about mercenaries during the Congo crisis of 1960 through 1965, uh, which, by the way, is also the setting of Warren Zevon's supernatural ballad, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. In this film, though, uh, Peter Kartzen plays a German mercenary. He's like, I think he's the villain of the piece. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he's in this fight with our hero, played by Rod Taylor, both mercenaries. And um, uh, the German mercenary grabs a chainsaw. So we have a fight featuring a chainsaw. And the chainsaw was heavily featured in the, both the trailer and the poster for this film.
0: Now, I wonder if it's significant that he's a German mercenary grabbing a chainsaw because some of the big early manufacturers of chainsaws were German firms like uh, hmm. like steel.
1: It's possible. Uh, the other film, The Wizard of Gore, this is a far more notorious film that I think a lot of horror buffs might at least have some um, knowledge of. A 1970 uh, splatter film by schlock legend Herschel Gordon Lewis about Montag the Magnificent who, in one scene, cuts a woman in half with a chainsaw. It's like a magic act except uh it's su- he's supposed to actually be cutting somebody in half. Uh,
0: this is a well-known gonzo B horror movie. I saw it many years ago and uh it might be surprising since I love, you know, a good weird B horror movie, but I, I remember not particularly enjoying this film. I I think it's just mostly about like a magician who who like his magic tricks are that he like kills people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, it's mostly notable I think for being schlock. Um Yeah. Now, this next uh, point is interesting as well. When it comes to sort of, you know, the, the horror directors of this era, we we generally give Toby Hooper all the credit uh, for, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it's worth noting that Wes Craven's notorious 1972 film, The Last House on the Left, uh, also beat Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the punch with the chainsaw as horror weapon trope. There's uh, at least, there's one kill in the film, at least, that involves a chainsaw. Hmm. Now that's that's also not a film that I've seen nor one I'm I'm planning to see, uh, but uh, I I checked in on it and read the synopsis and it's like yep okay chainsaw kill it happened. Now Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, really just blew the doors off for chainsaw horror. So in the wake of the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we just saw this reinforced time and time again, uh, certainly by additional Texas Chainsaw Massacre films, but also by films and franchises such as The Evil Dead. Uh, Phantasm, especially Phantasm 2. Um, the Doom video games uh, are mm-hmm. often brought up because you can use a chainsaw in those. And we should also give special mention to the 1980 film Pieces. Uh, this is a Spanish uh, chainsaw film from the director of Slugs and the Pod People. Oh, yeah, Juan Piquet Simon. Mm hmm. Uh, and I think I've seen this one. It's been a long time, uh, but I, I, seemed, I think I, I actually saw this one. Uh, and uh, I don't think it made a lot of sense at the time, but it does feature a chainsaw and a chainsaw related plot. Now, by mentioning the evil dead, at least uh, – I don't
0: recall the first movie, but I assume this is the case. It's definitely the case in the second movie. That sort of flips the script because in these cases, it is not the, uh, the evil killer, the villain of the movie wielding a chainsaw, but it is the hero of the movie facing a bunch of sort of uh, fluid-filled demonic entities that, uh, that must wield the chainsaw in self-defense.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could make a case. I, I think Last House on the, the Left. It's a revenge murder that involves the use of a chainsaw, hmm. but still not quite the same as Ash taking up the chainsaw as like the um, you know the holy weapon against the Deadites. Right. This is what will unleash the green goop from the from the demons. Now I know what a lot of you are probably wondering at this point. You're thinking, well, this is all fiction. Uh, but how how often is the chainsaw actually used? as a a lethal instrument, and how frequently. Oh, good Lord. Is that what we're wondering? (laughs) Well, I was wondering it. Okay, Um, (laughs) okay. No, no, it's a fair thing to wonder. Well, I think I, uh, there was, I remember when I was first sort of getting more, well, I don't know if I was first getting into it. I was was getting into horror a bit more in the mid-90s, and there was a chainsaw murder uh, in the state of Tennessee. Uh, I remember it making the headlines, yeah. So... That might have, you know, I think that was even at the time I was like, oh, wow, this really happens. There are actual chainsaw maskers, I guess, from time to time. Um, so uh, I was looking into, into this a little bit. And so for starters, there, there are a few obvious things about the chainsaw. Chainsaws are dangerous tools, and you should all and they should always be used with care and caution. Those chainsaws at haunted attractions, they are chainless, or they certainly should be chainless. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I've often wondered, though— could you just get rid of the chainless chainsaw entirely and have the, the guys at the haunted attractions just chase people around with leaf blowers instead? <laughs> I guess that uh,
0: that raises the question, is it important to see it or is it important just to hear it? I, I have I
1: th- been to I one of it's these. The, it's hearing it. I barely yeah. see the chainsaw. If it's Leatherface at the haunted attraction chasing you around with a leaf blower or just a motor of some sort, mm-hmm. wouldn't that work?
0: I have been chased by a chainsaw multiple times through, I think, a haunted cornfield and some haunted woods. Uh, I don't know. It's it's fun to run from a chainsaw as long as you know that it's not actually going to hurt you. Uh, but yeah, it, I guess it's a pretty simple thing, though. I wonder. I've thought about this before. So you take the chain off to render it harmless. It's just you know, it's just the bar there it doesn't actually have a cutting edge, and the motor is running without the chain. I, I wonder, from a maintenance point of view, is that bad for the saw? Is is that going to burn out the motor if there's no chain on there?
1: Yeah, I, I wish I thought I could have checked in with our contacts at uh, Netherworld uh, here in Atlanta and asked them, well, because I went this year and they had three chainsaws running uh, outside wow. of one house. You know, you expect one, you you, you demand one, mm-hmm. you expect there might be a second, but you don't expect three. And so that that caught me off guard.
0: So one compromise position is they could have one chainless chainsaw that you can see and that's enough to scare you. But then you hear
1: plenty of leaf blowers after that. <laughs> That sounds good. Just leaf blowers in the vicinity. Yeah. So I was looking uh, at a couple of sources on this. Uh, As reported by uh, Kohler et al. in Death by Chainsaw, Fatal Kickback Injuries to the Neck in the Journal of Forensic Science back in 2004. At the time, they were reporting that 2 million new chainsaws were sold each year in the United States. And this, of course, would augment the the, the number of existing chainsaws already in use. And this helped bring about 28,000 chainsaw-related injuries annually. Again, chainsaws are are dangerous tools. You have to use them properly, and even so, mishaps can occur. But
0: even in the case of uh, tools that require extreme caution like this, most of these
1: injuries were not fatal. Correct, yeah. Um, accidental chainsaw deaths, they wrote, were extremely rare. Only 10% of the cases they, they were looking at involved the head or the neck area, and the rest were lower extremities or hands. That's where you tend to see these injuries. Mm-hmm. But as the article points out via two different case studies of, of fatal um, injuries with chainsaws, kickback is the most common cause of injury and one of the greatest poten- uh, you know, potential threats uh, that can result in an accidental death. Kickback is when the rotating chain of the chainsaw is stopped by contact with a more solid area or solid substance or something, you know, and which rapidly throws the saw back toward the operator.
0: Right. So I'd imagine safety training that you'd go through if you're going to be operating a chainsaw would involve uh, being able to sort of predict and guard against this kickback.
1: Yeah. Now, I've seen some different numbers as well. Um, There's was, there was a source that cited the U.S. Bureau of Labor a report from 2012 saying that 2012 resulted in 30,509 chainsaw injuries with 1,400 resulting in, quote, hospitalization or death. And that's about uh, four point six percent, and we don't know exactly what the fatality percentage of that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, these are all just chainsaw related, so I'm I'm assuming they could involve other things as well. Like you're using a chainsaw on a ladder, and then there's kickback, and then you know someone falls off a ladder. Uh, you know that alone could be lethal without the the chainsaw ever actually touching your body. Mm-hmm. And there may, there may be some better numbers out there, some more recent numbers, uh, but I think these do illustrate a point. Chainsaws can be extremely dangerous or even deadly, but fatalities are rare. And when it comes to their use in crimes, we're, we're probably best to think back to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Leatherface uses the saw to dismember a dead body. But also in one murder. So in general, while a chainsaw is menacing and scary, it's generally not the most effective weapon available to an individual, uh, you know, if they're going to go out and commit murder. There is a book that I'm going to reference in this episode
0: that, uh, that I used as, as one of my major sources. It's called Chainsaws a History by, uh, mm-hmm. David Lee, uh, with some input by a chainsaw collector and historian named Mike Akers. It's kind of a, a coffee table book for chainsaw obsessives with lavish photographs of those big, beautiful saws. And uh, so this book has a lot of fun in it, but one of the things the authors point out in the introduction is that the the chainsaw is actually not an
1: ideal weapon for massacres, first of all, because somebody would always hear you coming. That's right. Um, And sometimes it's hilarious in movies where you need a jump scare, and they orchestrate a jump scare with a chainsaw. It's like, how do you start it that quickly?
0: Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't they need to – you'd hear them, like, pulling the, the starter chain and stuff?
1: There was a a video game years and years back called Manhunt that um, uh, the Rockstar Games put out, and there's an individual that you end up encountering with a chainsaw, And and I seem to recall that was the case there, where he would suddenly jump out from behind something at you, the chainsaw just going full throttle without ever having to actually start it. I think a more accurate chainsaw
0: enemy uh, might be encountered in Resident Evil 4. It's a guy with a bag on his head who's got a big chainsaw, he comes at you, but you get to see him like starting it up first. he's pulling the chain and all that,
1: not the chain. Yeah,
0: the, the cord, the starter
1: and in some movies that's that plays really well because there's this yeah the revving only one of the, the things that's scary about just the sounds of the chainsaw is that idea that it's like it's gaining in intensity and ferocity you know and so first it's starting and then it, then it gets you know just reaches this peak of insanity
0: So, uh, in the spirit of the season, since we're starting off this discussion uh, talking about horror movies, I had to look up what is the actual model of consumer chainsaw used in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) I found an answer to this. Uh, According to the Pennsylvania Lumber Museum's website – if Mm -hmm. if I'm ever in town, I'll try to make it to that museum – Uh, They claim that the filmmakers put a black piece of tape over the brand name to hide what it was. Uh, But apparently, if you know your chainsaws, it is clearly visible as a Poulon 306A. And so I pulled up a screenshot from Texas Chainsaw Massacre alongside a shot for you to look at, Rob. And I think, yeah, that is definitely the same saw. Um, The one thing I would not have been able to tell you uh, was, was the answer to the question, what color is the chainsaw? in the original TCM. Yeah. Uh, my, my mind would have been like, uh, I don't know, beige. I mean, I, I guess like that's the predominant some... color scheme of the film is beige and sometimes orange. Yes, exactly. So the original, the film that they used in the Texas chainsaw massacre looks like it can only really reproduce two colors. One is the color of sort of orange blood and the other is the color of like a rotting bale of hay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so th- that's what I would have said, but no, actually it is green uh, strange kind of unusual color to, to appear in the movie like this. And I guess for some reason that just fell out the back of my mind. But it is a notably green body around the engine and then a long straight bar and chain. Uh, and so the, the Pennsylvania Lumber Museum website uh, writes, quote, the Poulon 306A was introduced in 1970 and produced until 1980. The Poulon Company was founded by Lumberjack Claude Poulon in 1946. The company was uh, located in Shreveport, Louisiana, making the 306A a nice local option for a Texas chainsaw massacre. So this would have been a local saw.
1: Oh, okay. Because I was wondering when you said Poulan, I was thinking, is this a French chainsaw? That seems very unlike the Sawyer clan to to, to use a, an import. Uh, but I, I didn't think about the possible Cajun connection. They're using Cajun technology, which certainly makes it a more local option. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as for actual chainsaw murders, I'll just leave everyone else to research that that on your own time. There's there are plenty of uh, like true crime articles and lists out there that have more information on all this. And you know, it's all depressing stuff. Uh, but I, I I did find it interesting that uh, that sometimes there's kind of a, a, a fetishizing of the chainsaw, even in this kind of in these kind of articles and this kind of coverage. I found one that it talked about chainsaws as 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 allowing um, killing or murder to take place, uh, quote, on an industrial scale, which is a description that uh, that is I feel is both right and wrong, because on one level. I agree with that, you know, like we were talking about the lightsaber principle, you know, that the machine is doing some of the work for you, that, uh, you know, it's an industrialization of doing what a blade would do. But on the other hand, I feel like if you're talking about murder on an industrial scale, really, if you're if you're focusing on the chainsaw and ignoring firearms and explosives in in that discussion, then you're completely off. Like, like, I think firearms are the uh, are the true uh, uh, innovation that allows murder on an industrial scale. Uh, yeah, and uh, the the word scale
0: there would imply like actual numbers of cases, which, as you were saying, is is not particularly the case. Though I can see, of course, the idea. I mean, it's what is again scary about the concept of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is the mechanization of violence, the sort of uh, adding adding the uh, the internal combustion engine or the electric motor to the uh, to the to the murderer's agenda.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, kind of coming back to the impracticality of the chainsaw as a weapon, like maybe that's one of the comforting things about this and other slashers. It's like, oh, they use impractical weapons. They, these killers love to kill, but um, we'll probably hear them coming or have a good, we'll have a better chance at uh, outrunning them or somehow um, outsmarting them if they insist on using their, these ludicrous uh, killing techniques.
0: I suspect that Leatherface has not read his Poulan 306A safety manual and is not following proper safety procedure. I don't think you're supposed to run with the chainsaw revving. Hey, he pays for it, doesn't he? We see see consequences for that kind of recklessness. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess we should turn to discuss the invention of the chainsaw itself. And uh, one thing we always like to do when we talk about an invention is to talk about what came before. What was the state of affairs that this invention uh, had to come into to introduce new capabilities. And though chainsaws can have, of course, many uses, they are primarily today associated with logging. So I thought it would be good to start with a look at logging before the chainsaw. Uh, so a few notes on logging terminology. I had to get this stuff straightened out so I would understand what, uh, say, this, this book by David Lee and Mike Akers was talking about and other sources I was looking at on the internet. So um, so logging involves more than just the process of cutting down an upright tree. Uh, the term for cutting down an upright tree at the base, uh, I've seen referred to as felling or falling a tree. But it doesn't stop there. You've also got the process of limbing, which is very important. That's removing limbs from either a, a felled tree trunk or a uh, or a tree trunk while it's still standing. And then, this is a big part of the business, there's what's known as Bucking. This is cutting a felled tree into logs of a specified length. And one reason it's important to call it the difference early on between felling and bucking is that uh, when you imagine performing these two tasks, the saw has to be oriented uh, in a different direction for each one. So when you're felling a tree, the saw has to go horizontally through the tree when it's upright. When you're bucking a tree to cut it into uh, logs of a specified length, you need to go up and down. It's a vertical cutting this is uh, you know, pretty easy to do with a modern chainsaw, which is handheld and very maneuverable. But if you were to imagine, say, an earlier age where people were trying to use um, bulkier, more complex machinery that, that had more moving parts and was harder to move around, maybe something you couldn't hold with just one person's arm strength, then the difference between felling and bucking becomes very significant. Now, of course, even after that, after you've got a a bucked piece of raw timber, uh, there's more work to do with the sawing. Of course, you can maybe split that log into uh, lengthwise wedges, say for firewood, or you can do hewing, which is uh, taking a bucked log uh, and cutting it to have flat surfaces for use in building. Though hewing is a sort of archaic term that I think refers to a process in which you might use like an axe. And then, of course, there's sawing a bucked log into pieces of flat lumber that might be shipped or, or immediately used in some way. Uh, there's another wonderful term that I came across that I never knew before, and that term is kerf, K-E-R-F. Uh, Rob, maybe you knew this word, but I did not. It's a word I was I not always, familiar with it, no. Yeah, I, I always – you needed a word for this, and I didn't know what it was. A kerf is the cut that is made while you're sawing something. So it's that, it's that unfinished cut through the wood. And and sometimes, uh, say, cutting down a tree will involve things that you have to do to the kerf. For example, uh, hammering a wedge into the kerf to help make sure that the tree is bending in the right way and that it's not uh, closing in on your saw and binding it. And one of the things that's been most interesting to me about, uh, about researching this is the, the surprising fact that well into the 20th century – the most common tools for sawing and bucking wood uh, were manually powered tools. So even you know within the memory of people who are alive today, the most common tools you would find used in logging would be the axe, the wedge, the springboard. And the springboard, by the way, th- this is an interesting uh, uh, device. This is a thing... Where you would sort of like in, cut a little uh, uh, notch into a tree, and you would put a board up on the tree so you could stand on it in order to better cut the trunk. Hmm. So it's so like you're a, not having to to chop at the area that's wider around the roots. Right. Yeah. So you could sort of position your body for for cutting or sawing uh, higher up. Uh, but oh, but I didn't get to the uh, to the last thing, which was by far I think the most important of all these tools. It was the hand powered saw, and for large trees, this was often the famous two man saw, known colloquially as the misery whip which in the felling of larger trees could be more than 10 feet long with a handle at each end. So this would be worked by two sawyers, each pulling from their side, just taking turns going back and forth to take down a redwood or whatever giant tree. Uh, A lot of this logging was especially taking place up in the Pacific Northwest. So a lot of the sawing innovations happen in places like Oregon, but you can imagine the giant trees there and two guys with a with a 10 foot long crosscut saw one handle at each end and they're just working themselves to death on this
1: trunk. I feel like my 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 earliest and still clearest uh, like mental images of this particular type of saw comes from watching cartoons. I can't remember yeah. if it was uh like if it was like Looney Tunes or Disney, you know, if it was Chipmunks or whatever. Uh, but I remember like cartoon depictions. It might've even been like Woody Woodpecker or something. I don't know. But, uh, there were cartoon depictions of people using these saws and it, you know, things getting out of control and the saw like bunching up or pulling someone through the, um, what, through the kerf, if you will.
0: Yeah. I mean, some of the photographs you see of logging sites at this time With people, you know, posing with their misery whips and their axes and everything, they look like something straight out of a cartoon. I've attached a couple of pictures for you to look at here, Rob. One is a a photo from circa 1906, which is a couple of guys or three guys in the middle of cutting down a gigantic tree. It looks like it could be a redwood. I think this was a photo taken somewhere in the state of Washington. And uh, and one guy is so they've they've cut it's not just a flat kerf they've cut a wedge out of the tree I think to help it fall in the right direction when they when they finally get all the way through it and one of the loggers is just lying down inside the wedge on this giant tree
1: yeah incredibly dangerously <laughs> I mean uh, one assumes they knew what they were doing and that this was a safe time to climb into the you know the death zone for a photo but ooh.
0: I also found an awesome picture of a misery whip in use from a photo on the website of a local history museum in Hood River County, Oregon. Uh, So, Rob, if you you just take a look at this beast for a moment, it looks like a still from an upcoming Robert Eggers movie. You know, it would be the Mm follow-up to The Lighthouse. It's about some kind of uh, romantic shenanigans between a logger and a beast of the forest. And, uh, this picture though, I, I, one of the things they were saying on the website is it might well be kind of posed for maximum effect, but it has two guys, two very, uh, surly looking fellas on each side of a misery whip. And then in the foreground, there's a shotgun and then a bottle of clear, uh, liquid and then multiple axes. One axe just like sunk into the tree sticking out of it. Uh, it's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, and the guy on the left, he looks a little bit like the PE coach from uh, the TV show AP Bio.
0: <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, that's good. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of physical education, I think these guys would be candidates for the the president's uh, physical fitness award because, wow, I mean, imagining the physical exertion that goes in to sawing down just tree after tree all day long with these hand-powered crosscut saws, it, its it's kind of hard to fathom.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, yeah, grueling work, and then all the, the uh, the the hazards that would be present in the job. Just but uh, you know by virtue of using these tools, but also by felling trees, which are inherently dangerous themselves. And
0: one of the things that uh, is pointed out in in chainsaws a history, the, this book by Lee, um, is that again, well into the twentieth century, most log working out in the woods, at least, was done by these human powered tools: the axe, the handsaw, the the crosscut saw, or the misery whip. And these tools could basically get every job done. It wasn't like there were Uber trees that could not be cut down by conventional hand-powered technology. And, you know, you couldn't cut them down and and cut them up until you had a chainsaw. Uh, but But the issue is that it's this absolutely grueling physical labor that took time and was hard on the bodies of workers. So... Obviously, once the Industrial Revolution comes around, there would be people turning their minds to the question of, is there any way to make the job of felling and bucking trees faster or easier? And it turns out that even though there were no modern chainsaws in exactly the form we think of for felling and bucking wood until the 20th century, there were some very weird and interesting inventions in the 1800s trending in that direction – Uh, So, for example, one design that Lee brings up is this kind of giant cogwheel. Uh, It looks in in the illustrations like a big metal collar that fits around the trunk of a tree. And then inside this metal collar, there is a cutting blade that is dragged around the outside of the tree in a circular motion, powered by a hand crank. Um, I, I couldn't find any pictures online, but there is a picture in the book I was looking at, and uh, it, it's very Clive Barker. It's like a torture device for wood.
1: What also brings to mind the film Robot Jocks that we talked about on Weird House <laughs> Cinema, uh, uh, there's a saw very much like this, except with like a sci-fi variation of it, that one of the giant uh, mechs uses against the other.
0: Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Lee also mentions that there is a U.S. patent for something called a saw chain in the year 1858, Uh, but without any method for powering the rapid movement of the chain. So it didn't really offer any advantage at the time. But then it gets to something really interesting. So Lee's examples of these these pre-chainsaw-powered saw ideas included, much to my interest, reference to a passage in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. And this would have been published in 1897. So this, again, long predates the modern chainsaw. And so I looked up the context so I could, I could read this whole passage from the War of the Worlds uh, describing a, an industrially powered saw. Uh, it goes like this. The narrator's describing fleeing from the Martian invasion. And and uh and he says, We went down the lane by the body of the man in black, sodden now from the overnight hail, and broke into the woods at the foot of the hill. We pushed through these towards the railway without meeting a soul. The woods across the line were but the scarred and blackened ruins of woods. For the most part, the trees had fallen, but a certain proportion still stood, dismal gray stems with dark brown foliage instead of green. On our side the fire had done no much more than scorch the nearer trees. It had failed to secure its footing. In one place the woodman had been at work on Saturday. Trees, felled and freshly trimmed, lay in a clearing, with heaps of sawdust by the sawing machine and its engine. Hard by was a temporary hut deserted. There was not a breath of wind this morning, and everything was strangely still. Even the birds were hushed, and as we hurried along, I and the artillerymen talked in whispers and looked now and again over our shoulders. Once or twice we stopped to listen. So uh, this again makes reference to a sawing machine that would have been used by the woodmen who were cutting down the trees. And it's interesting that – I think Wells is sort of drawing a contrast uh, of the two types of technology here. On one side of the road, the forest is just absolutely annihilated by the fires, I believe caused by, by something from the Martian invasion. I, I would assume it was the heat ray or some other kind of damage they've done. But then on the other side, there is this, this partial clearing made by the human woodman and their sawing machine, which I guess Wells may have seen as one, you know, sort of peak pinnacle technology of humankind at the time, but it can't compete with the destruction caused by the Martians. And so the question is, what is this sawing machine that he makes reference to? Well, according to Lee, this is not a sci-fi invention of Wells' imagination, but very likely a reference to a 19th century steam-powered saw known as a ransom, R-A-N-S-O-M-E. And it's named after its creator, an English inventor named A. Ransom. uh, And it debuted in the year 1860. And so it goes something like this. You would have a central wood-fired steam boiler. And then from the steam boiler, you would have pressure hoses leading out to the saws. So, you know, the steam powers the pressure in the hose. And then each saw would have a single-cylinder motor and the piston in this cylinder would power a reciprocating saw blade, and so uh, that's important to note that this is not like a chainsaw with a chain continuously going around in one direction. It's a reciprocating saw blade, like you would use with like a handsaw, as it's moving back and forth with a solid blade surface. Hmm. Uh, Better than hand sawing, I'm sure, uh, or at least easier, but uh, the ransom was used for logging in Europe and in Africa around uh, around the turn of the 20th century. But Lee notes that even if you take away the central boiler, which is necessary for it to work, and all the hoses and all the possible accessories, just the saw, just each saw on its own connected to the central boiler would weigh 600 pounds or 273 kilograms – uh, wow. And the, the central boiler supplying the steam power was also gigantic. It had to be transported on a horse-drawn platform. And, of course, the boiler required water and fuel, which you probably needed to source on site. So you can imagine how much more difficult this is than the, the you know, light, portable, uh, handheld chainsaws of today. This, this, is, a, this is a whole apparatus. Uh, but I do love the vision of it. I mean, this is like something out of a steampunk nightmare.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a way, this reminds me of some of the the design uh, uh, challenges and some of the the reasons that we ended up getting the armored tank. You know, because it's one thing to have the gun; uh, it's one thing to have the saw, uh, but then uh, how are you going to get it where you need to use it? How are you how are you going to transport it across difficult terrain? Right. Um, and so, I mean, in in the case of the gun, well, if you're talking about a large piece of artillery. You you generally have no other choice but to figure out how to how to build up the machinery around it, how to to make it mobile. Figure out what sort of wheels or tracks are necessary. Uh, but with the chainsaw, if, if the, I mean with the powered saw anyway, um, if you could make it smaller. And, and you know, and, and still work. If you could, you could, you could, you could somehow um, reduce the need for for uh, some sort of animal power or or some sort of extravagant machine power being necessary to to move it, uh, then that would solve so many of your problems.
0: Yeah, th- that's exactly right. And I think this is a problem that's much bigger than just the chainsaw. The chainsaw is one example of the many different kinds of technology. That would be revolutionized by power sources and and motors and engines becoming smaller and more portable, mm-hmm. especially in the early 20th century, as uh, as we had better uh, like electric motors, and then later in the 20th century, as the uh, as the size and, and format of internal combustion engines got uh, got smaller and more manageable, especially like into the 1940s, and so yeah. But there's another thing that's important here, uh, which is uh, that Lee mentions that these powered saw inventions of the time are pretty much all still rooted in thinking about sawing in the reciprocating format, that is, sawing with back-and-forth motion – which, again, if you think about it for a second, modern chainsaws don't do that. They diverge from the back-and-forth reciprocating motion. Chainsaws apply the removal surface drag in one continuous direction rather than going back and forth. Uh, and there are some advantages to that that I'll get into in just a minute.
1: But given the, the, uh, the importance of the misery whip, it, it makes sense, right, to imagine, well, if, if we could mechanize this, what would we do? Yes. Uh, could we take the misery whip and create a machine that uses it for us? Yeah, and this is something that seems to be the case throughout a lot of the early years
0: of, of development of power saws, is they're just taking the idea of a hand-powered saw and then saying, can we make this electrically powered or, say, gasoline-powered or something, in, and, but without changing anything about the blade or how it works, just changing how the power or force is applied. And actually, it'll be changes in, on, on both sides that give us the, the ultimate modern chainsaw. So really, when you think about it, the modern chainsaw involves two important technological components that would make it different than what came before. One of them is the small-scale portable power source and motor, and the other one is the one-directional cutting chain. Hmm. Um, So what are some of the early examples trending in these two directions? Well, Lee lists a few more things that I thought were interesting. Including one thing that sounds like a total terror. But, uh, so first of all, he mentions that in 1897, there was an inventor in Oregon who got a patent for something called a quote, sawing chain and frame, but there's no evidence it was ever produced. So this could be one of those sort of, uh, 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 non-viable prototypes of something that would later mm-hmm. work. And then in 1905, there's a business called the Ashland Ironworks, also in Oregon, uh, that manufactured an early pneumatic chainsaw, but apparently this saw very little pickup in the market. Uh, the same year, in 1905, a gasoline-powered chainsaw was demonstrated in Eureka, California, and Lee describes it as follows, quote, Driven by a two-cylinder water-cooled engine, the machine drew its fuel and water supply from tanks that were nailed to the tree trunk above it and, <laughs> quote, removed when the tree was about to go over. Oh, oh my man. God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, uh, yeah, That without even having all the details about humans interacting with it, with this thing, this sounds devastatingly dangerous. Could that be the basis of a horror movie? I don't know. Your killer would be very immobile. <laughs> Just
0: like, come here, come over to this tree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there's another thing that's interesting about this one that makes it very different than the chainsaws of today. In this model, the chain did not rotate around a fixed bar or blade. Uh, So when you picture a modern chainsaw, you know, there's the chain and then there's that flat metal thing that the chain goes around. Generally, that's referred Mm -hmm. to as the bar. Uh, so, the, you know, the bar doesn't move, but the chain circles around the outside of the bar. This this chainsaw did not have a bar. It just had a chain, and the motor would power a chain that rotated freely around the trunk of the tree. So this would be kind of like a gas-powered garrotte wire for a tree, with, with part of the machine itself nailed to the tree above where you were cutting. Uh, now, that is
1: very in keeping with the uh, uh, the, the device we see in robot jocks.
0: Yes. But allegedly, this thing could cut through a, a trunk of about 10 feet in diameter in, in four and a half minutes. Oh, wow. Now, the book also mentions an issue of Scientific American that had a cover uh, photo boasting a giant chainsaw bucking a huge fallen redwood. And I found it's from the issue from January twenty second, 1910. The caption is, Cutting a redwood tree with a saw driven by an engine. So in a way, this is a lot like a chainsaw because this model does actually have a central bar with a cutting chain that rotates around it, and the chain is powered by a motor, but it is not like modern chainsaws in that it is not a handheld tool. This is a massive appliance that's operated by an engine mounted on some kind of platform that looks like it's on tracks.
1: And yet, in this, uh, this image, you can still see why this would be a great invention to have. Like, this is an enormous uh, tree trunk, yeah. and I can, I can easily imagine how this would have saved them time. Yeah,
0: and so yeah, they're cutting a redwood, which, of course, again, is a gigantic trunk, mm-hmm. and they're using it for bucking on a on a redwood that has already been knocked down. So it's lying flat on the ground, and this machine is going alongside it, bucking out the logs of, of whatever length they're going to end up using. Apparently, it was mm-hmm. developed by a California-based inventor named R.L. Muir, and it was called the Endless Crosscut Saw. Oh, wow. That sounds very poetic. The Endless
1: Saw, yeah. it It saws forever, the infinite saw. It that, it kind of sums up perhaps the um, you know the, the national view of our forests at that time. Uh, <laughs> that this was you know an endless saw for an endless supply
0: of uh, of wood. So there's also a segment in Lee's book that I thought was very good because it addresses the question of why a chain, what, well, you know, like why even bother with a chainsaw as opposed to the, the more classic reciprocating saw, because there were all these models where you could take an engine and apply some kind of mechanical power to a classic style back and forth reciprocating saw blade. Uh, what What actually makes a chain that much better? Well, apparently unidirectional motion of the cutting surface is better for multiple reasons. Uh, First of all, stopping saw motion to reverse direction, which you have to do every single pass with a reciprocating saw, that makes it harder to build up speed on the motion of the saw, and it's also a huge waste of energy. So every time you accelerate the cutting edge, you then immediately have to waste energy slowing it down again and stopping it before you reverse. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, But Lee points out something else that uh, I wouldn't have thought about, which is that reciprocating motion also creates vibration, which makes it more difficult to guide cuts accurately. Um, And so when I was reading this, I immediately started wondering about something about, okay, wait a minute, though. You could have continuous one-directional sawing motion without having a reciprocating saw by using a circular saw, right? You know, like somebody would have in their wood shop. That's one-directional cutting. That would uh, solve some of these problems.
1: Right, and, and of course, we, we've seen plenty of images of this in like uh, industrialized, uh, you know, um, uh, lumber processing facilities where there'll be that one big vertical saw that they're sending logs down. And then, of course, if you're watching some sort of a horror or a suspense show, inevitably a human being is going to be sent down there to be cut in half as well.
0: Right? Yeah, the Joker is going to tie up Batman and put him on the road down to the big circular mm-hmm. saw. But of course, while a circular saw is great in a, in a sort of workshop or sawmill environment where like you have fixed sawing infrastructure and you know the size of the things you're going to have to cut, you can imagine that you might start to encounter problems using a giant circular saw to say, Cut trees down in the field because when you think about a circular saw, the maximum depth of a cut made by a circular saw is going to be the radius of the saw blade or about the radius mm. of the saw blade, right? Because yeah. it has to be mounted from the middle. So, if you want to cut through a tree trunk that's 10 feet wide, you need a saw that can cut in at least about five feet. Uh, so, you'd need like a 10 foot wide circular saw blade uh which it sounds very cool but not practical uh though despite that impracticality circular saws for logging actually did exist in the early days of power sawing uh so there's an image of one of these again in Lee's book called the holt stump saw it's one of those images you you it, it's amazing but you kind of wish you could unsee it uh, it looks like an absolute slaughter wagon. So there's like the, a tractor basically with tracks and then mounted on the tractor is this giant metal arm with a steering wheel at one end and a guy wearing a fedora holding the steering wheel. And then at the other end of, of this pole leading out from the wheel is a humongous circular saw that's just open to the air.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, this is is <laughs> this is very terrifying looking. It also reminds me of the various... Uh, saw uh, mechanisms and vehicles that are in the Lorax, uh, the, the illustrated book. Uh, because, oh. of course, the, where you eventually get with the Lorax is that the onesler and his corporation are just cutting down all the, the truffle of trees they can, and they have these machines to aid them. And they look like you know basically fever dreams based on this concept, big circular <laughs> blades attached to weird arms and whatnot.
0: Oh, I wonder if the idea comes from seeing one of these actual machines, like the Holt stump saw. Yeah, could be. Well, allegedly, I mean, so these things did exist, even though they they had their problems. Apparently, giant circular saws for logging were uh, made in Russia and in France, uh, but again, they were huge, unwieldy. They had problems, and so chainsaws, of course, they offered the best of both worlds. So the rotating chain allows you to have the speed and energy efficiency and accurate cut guiding of a circular saw, but with the convenient
1: long shape of the reciprocating saw. All right. Well, on that note, we're we're reaching the end of this episode, so we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to go and cut it off right here. But, uh, but we're going to be back. Yeah, clean cut. We have, we have so much to cover in the next episode. We're going to talk about the, the invention of the chainsaw, really the, the, the most Im- important chainsaws in chainsaw history. We're going to talk about medical chainsaws, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the, the chainsaw symbolizes in, um, in, in American culture. Uh, so, uh, And I'm sure we'll, we'll also continue to, to, to discuss a few horror movies along the way. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You can get that wherever you get your podcast. Uh, normally, we have a core episode on Tuesday and Thursday, Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, Weird House Cinema on Friday. That's, of course, our, our weird movie episode that kind of bucks the tradition of science and culture that we, uh, we, uh, we stick to for the rest of the episodes. However, the week that you're listening to this show, we may be altering that a little bit just to get out content before Halloween. It wouldn't be Halloween if we didn't throw a few surprises your way. Um,
0: so, so as always, huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.